Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. For my money, there are very few people who write about music as compellingly and as insightfully as Michael Barkley. And that's why I was thrilled when I heard that his latest book, Hearts on Fire, Six Years that Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005, was being published. And I was even more thrilled when he agreed to come on and talk about it. The book is the authoritative account about how, in the early years of the new millennium, the world noticed that the musical artists coming out of Canada, from Arcade Fire to Tegan and Sarah, from Broken Social Scene to Cadence Weapon and beyond, were amazingly, incontrovertibly, and finally cool. We talk about the amazing diversity of musical talent on offer, the material conditions that made the phenomenon possible, the importance of killer live performances and drummers, and the role that late tragically hip lead singer Gord Downey played in bringing the book to fruition. All right, Michael Barkley, welcome. How are you? Uh, weird, like everybody else. How are you? I'm good. You know, weird is relative. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate having another weird person on the on the podcast. Uh, so congratulations on the book. It is excellent. Thank you very much. I'm wondering if we could start with the subtitle. Uh, and I, I want to reference an earlier book of yours, which was Have Not Been the Same, uh, which covered the can rock renaissance from 1985 to 1995. The new book, Hearts on Fire, Six Years that Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. There's a four-year gap there. I'm wondering if you could, by way of intro into what the book is about, tell us sort of what those four fallow years were missing and kind of what changed in, in 2000 to warrant our gaze? Uh, I think they kind of sucked. Um, <laughs> I, I lived through the 90s and um, survived. Uh, there's lots of great things in the 90s I love, obviously, Canadian and otherwise. Um, and maybe the reason I love them so much is that they really stand out from all the other crap. So, so I'm 50 years old. So uh, in 1990, I was approximately 20. The years 85 to 95 are my high school years and university years. So those, you know, for anybody, those years mean a lot to you. So uh, the music at that time meant a lot to me. But I also did think it was trans transformational change in terms of um, creativity in Canadian music, a really uh, glorious period. Um, things like Much Music, Campus Radio really taking off during that time. That that kind of defined that book. And then there's, as I'm sure you might recall, there's a bit of an indie boom in the early 90s post Nirvana in the States, post Bare Naked Ladies in Canada, which is something people don't talk about those two bands together for a whole bunch of reasons, but uh, <laughs> um, it's quite interesting what happened here in Canada. And then there's a lot of money thrown around, you know, the, rec the major record labels uh, were, were flush with cash from CDs and CD reissues. And, and then, yeah, the late nineties, uh, it just felt like everything was being thrown against the wall to see what sticks. And then it was also musical trends were changing and, it was kind of like arena rock or bust or boy bands or bust and and clubs were closing a lot uh, a lot of the infrastructure from the uh, 80s and 90s was starting to crumble uh, labels were going under uh, uh, cargo records a major distributor went under and, and caused a lot of damage in the canadian industry and then 2005 there's just there's this uh, another even more gloriously creative period just so much great music during that time it's just a zeitgeist thing, you know, there's no one thing that explains it. Um, but what was different about it, other than the quality of the art, 
was that it reached the world uh, and it reached, you know, corners of Canada would normally because, you know, two simple words, the internet, like file sharing, message boards, blogs, eventually MP3 blogs, allowed all these weirdos to kind of leapfrog over traditional gatekeepers and reach people around the world. And then can't, the rest of the world realized, you know, Canadian music is not just uh, Brian Adams or Shania Twain or, you know, a lot of the superstars that were also very good at producing, but that there's a lot of really unique original art being made here. So that's why I love those years. Now, a lot of people in this book, you know, their stories do start in the 90s, in the late 90s. People like uh, Godspeed, for example, people like the Sadies, Sarah Harmer, certainly Joel Plaskett, but but nothing really happened for them in the 90s. So I felt like the the late 90s, those four years you asked a question about, it was all just a prelude to what happened. So if I wanted to define the moment, it would have to be 2000 to 05. And I, you know, I thought about doing the rest of the decade, like through to 2010, which is technically 11 years. Uh, but I realized all the major transformations were in the first half. All my favorite artists started out in the first half. Um, that's when the real uh, mystery and magic happened and then you know many great things happened after that but it was it was more of a continuation so you're going to probably hear me gush about this book a fair bit in this conversation because i i absolutely adore it and and one thing that kind of distinguishes the book for me and and your previous books is you you have this real reportorial gaze for granularity right like there's an enormous amount of detail packed into the book that could work again it could, well, it could, but the other half of it is that, you know, you know how to maintain narrative momentum. Like it's, it, it's a, it's a really fun read to okay. go through, particularly for those of us who, who sort of lived through those years. You mentioned, and, and one of the things as a result of that attention to detail, and, and you foregrounded this in a way, which I hadn't really appreciated before, was kind of the, if I can call them the material circumstances in which this boom occurred. And you've referred to one element of that, which was the widespread adoption of the internet and in particular kind of broadband access. But could you sort of just pull out some of the other elements of what was kind of in the infrastructure in Canada in those years, which made this all sort of happen? Well, one was, uh, I just mentioned there's this kind of indie boom and then bust. So I think during the bust, you know, some people in this book had already gone through the major label system. People like Sarah Harmer with their band Weeping Tile, people like Joel Plaskett with his band Thrush Hermit, and uh, and it didn't really work out for them. And then they were just like, well, screw it. I'm just going to do what I do and hope it finds ears. And it did. You know, I think that there's this lowering of expectations. I think a lot of artists no longer felt a need to conform to the Canadian music industry. They realized they just didn't need it. And, and that even if you succeed in the Canadian music industry, it's not that great. Like <laughs> the, the payoff, the, the compromises you have to make uh, in order to reach uh, that certain level are, are, are ultimately not worth it, you know, and, and artists talk to each other. They know all the stories, you know, having said that, of course, it does work out for some people, you know, and, and uh, the inverse of that is a band like Billy Talent, who tried to be an indie success for years and nobody cared. Nobody, nobody would put out the record and then suddenly they get a major label deal and end up having a very traditional route to success. Um, but for most people, that wasn't true for most people. So that kind of lowered expectation um, allowed them to just be as weird as they wanted to be and just do what they wanted to do and make international connections. Like, don't try and please the guy, you know, in a corporate office uh, near Queen Street West. Like, try and please the guy who runs a, 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 a strange little, you know, psychedelic electronic jazz label in Britain or, you know, like, try and please, um, 
this upstart label in Berlin or, or, you know, an indie label in North Carolina. Like that's, those are people who understand you more than, than the inherent compromises that, that often exist in the Canadian music industry. And I also interviewed, you know, my friend, Steve Jordan, who ultimately uh, went on to found the Polaris Music Prize, worked A&R for Warner Records during that time. And he wanted to sign everybody and he couldn't because he was told like, unless this act can sell a hundred thousand copies of a record, don't bother. So I, I think that lowering of expectation um, was a big part of it. And then, you know, real estate as well. I mean, people often ask me like, oh, what about today? And, how do you, and I'm like, real estate, real estate, real estate. Real estate was cheap. Montreal, you know, is historically cheaper than the rest of Canada, but it particularly was during that time, the 1995 referendum there, the nail biter of a referendum on, on separation plummeted rents. Like people were paying like a hundred bucks a month in rent to live in a big space in Montreal <laughs> where you could make noise. And, and that is so key. And Toronto and Vancouver were even affordable at that time. You know, a lot of people paying three to $500 in rent. Um, and they also had space to make noise, a rehearsal space, clubs. You know, it's possible these days with property tax and everything else. Like, it's tough. It's really, really tough today. And I, I, I fear for the future of bands, not of music, because music will always be made and it'll be scaled down electronically or otherwise. But like, I do fear about bands today because I, I felt like during this time we're talking about, it, it was relatively easy to have access to space uh, in which you could make noise. So I think that was, those two things were key, expectations and real estate. Yeah, I, I was, once I read the piece about the cheap rents, I was like, oh yeah, that's like so obvious, but it, it just had never occurred to me that that was really a critical component of allowing all these people to gather. And, and also the funding that you mentioned, you know, the government funding that was available and, and even the, you know, the uh, government assistance rates where people could just focus on being musicians for a few years. Yeah, um, I think funding, I mean, funding is a very fraught topic. I, I think funding mm -hmm. doesn't actually help a lot of musicians. It helps the infrastructure, which is important. Like right. we, we clearly need that infrastructure because of the size of our population relative to the size of our geography. So I think funding really helps labels, indie labels like arts and crafts, paper bag, six shooters, uh, stuff like that. And funding made touring easier abroad for artists. But, you know, funding rewards things that are already successful. So funding doesn't help creativity at all. Like as mm -hmm. we've all seen, we can all point to a record that got funding and like, what is this crap? Why, you know? <clears throat> but what funding does is, um, is if, you know, you, you've already uh, invested in the building blocks of your own career and you've proven you can do something, then funding will help maintain that. But I, I don't want to pretend that, that funding enables creativity because I don't think it does. And, and some of the best records in this book never received any funding. Some of the best artists in this book never received any funding. Right. So it's one component of the picture, but I'm, I'm really hesitant to uh, make the case that it's the only one. Fair enough. The, if I could pick up on one thread there that you mentioned, because again, this was something that was really kind of underlined for me in, in the descriptions that you provide in the book was the importance of touring and the importance of like live events. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like this was, and, and maybe I'm overstating it, but it seems like this was kind of the last generation or the last movement for which the, the live experience was really critical to the success that they, you know, obtained and the connection that they were able to make with the audience. Am I, am I sort of overstating that? Or do you think that that live component was really crucial here for them? That's hard to say, because generationally, I grew up with live music and people 20 years younger than me didn't, you know, kids today, that's not part of their routine uh, to go see, to go see live music. That's just not, that's not the habit. 
yeah, that's an interesting point because you know I remember seeing a David Byrne talk once, kind of around the period of time in this book, and somebody asked him, you know, do you think like with live streaming, um, and this is very early days of even most people having high speed internet, <clears throat> and said, so, you know, do you think like uh, uh, watching concerts online will replace replace the live experience? And I was just like, what? How can you even ask that? <laughs> like that is ridiculous. <laughs> It's totally devoid of the spiritual communication that you have with people in a room. And, you know, Byrne politely deflected the question. But I've been thinking about that moment a lot lately because we've all spent two years on the couch. And I'm wondering if people will get off the couch. You know, last night, I won't tell you who, but last night I saw one of the hottest bands in North America uh, play a very large venue in Toronto. Um, not that good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're a weird band. They're a somewhat unconventional band. But I was like, this this band has been really popular for a couple of years now and still seem really green on stage. That's really odd to me. And, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting a slick professional show. And like I said, they're a bit of a weird band, but um, you should be able to know how to speak into a microphone in between songs. Like this right. performer <laughs> didn't seem to be aware of where her microphone was. Um, uh, so that was interesting. But I, I, I do think that, um, with very few exceptions, all the bands in this book really killed it live. Like, mm -hmm. um, and and this was a time when instant hype was invented, right? Like, you know, the classic, the Arcade Fire story is classic. You know, they get a near perfect review from a publication nobody had heard of a couple of years ago before. Uh, the review comes out three days before the record does, and it instantly sells out of its print run. You know, that is instant hype a band going from zero to hero based on one review in an online only magazine, uh, which is Pitchfork, of course. So that, and, but here's the thing, they killed live, like they were amazing, they still are. And there were many other uh, kind of so-called uh, blogger bands, kind of uh, instant buzz bands who were not good live. And it's not like Arcade Fire had tons of touring experience, uh, they just delivered, they, they they and a lot of other people in this book kind of had the attitude of why bother getting on stage at all unless you're going to give it everything you have. And I mean, this goes down to the title of the book, which comes from a Wolf Parade song, but it's it's about a lot of these bands had this earnestness, uh, this real passion uh, to deliver. And they all had amazing drummers. Like listening to all this music again, you know, it's the old adage, you know, shitty drummer, shitty band. All these bands had just killer, killer drummers. And that helps too. So I think that the live experience was a big part of it, you know, and and this was like post 90s irony. This was post 9-11. People wanted to to feel something in a room together. So whether that's something like Arcade Fire or whether that's something like Peaches, who learned her craft by teaching kids in daycare, <laughs> you know, where it's like you can't phone it in with a bunch of four-year-olds like they are on your ass. And she kind of took that to a very different space, a very sexually charged, very adult space. But the, her sense of performance comes from that, you know? Don't phone it in, like, like and, and, and get people involved. And we are all in this room together and we're gonna experience something. And, and I, think, I think all the acts in this book had that, even a, back, a band like, you know, Godspeed, who don't speak to the audience, like that, that music just pulls you in and then, took you on this journey and then like people would would be weeping and, and fainting like they just found it so emotional you know 
Uh, or the flip side of that, an act like, you know, Tegan and Sarah, when they started out as a duo, their set was like half stand-up comedy because they're both hilarious people <laughs> and they would just bicker on stage and like, you know, for many different reasons, different acts in this book all had that commitment to live performance and it really worked. And I think that was key because, you know, the music was great, the records were great, but when they actually showed up in your town and you went to see them, you, you fell in love with these people. Right. My, uh, so one of my colleagues uh, is David Quentin Steinberg. So he's, uh, he played in the mods and played in the dead boys and a bunch mm. of other bands. He's going to be, he was the drummer. So he's going to be ecstatic about hearing your, uh, <laughs> your uh, praise of the importance of the drummer. I, I'm going to sort of make a, a couple of different observations here, which I imagine will get all jumbled up and hopefully there will be a question which is answerable coming out of this. But one of the stories that you're telling in this book is the attention that was paid to Canadian acts from outside of Canada, right? So, I mean, you know. It's kind of the thesis of the book. That was my framework. Yeah, like the British, you know, music press and, and the Americans and everybody's sort of saying, like, this was the moment where everybody kind of turned their gaze to Canada and said, oh, shit, like, there's something really interesting happening here. And it's not just the story of one city. Like, this is truly a national movement is the wrong word, but um, it, it's a national phenomenon. And to me, there's, I, I guess, potentially a danger. So in previous, you know, city focused musical moments, right? Manchester, um, Seattle, you know, London, Los Angeles, there's a cycle which happens, I think, which is this sort of awareness which then becomes self-awareness, which then can sort of develop into imitation and self-consciousness in, in the sense that, you know, you, the bands or the musicians suddenly start saying, oh, well, we want to be like this. We want to fit into this movement or become part of this trend or whatever. And then it sort of eats itself and it all kind of you know, fades away. Was that, did that dynamic occur here? Because to me as an outsider and as a fan, like I don't, really think that ever happened here right and so that that's kind of one of the interesting kind of cultural you know relics of this movement was that it never really became like self-parodic right like they all just they, they were so diverse and, and it was because it was a national phenomenon it, it didn't it wasn't really able to kind of eat itself yeah and and uh i think a lot of what, what journalists like to group together as geographical uh, scenes are genre related. So we are not talking about one genre of music here. You know, Arcade Fire certainly spawned a lot of imitators uh, everywhere, not just in Canada, but everywhere. And that that is its own thing that ate itself and people tired of that formula to some degree, I mean, it's still around, but, uh, and the band themselves changed and evolved. And there are many people who don't like anything they did after funeral, you know? So uh, yeah, I, I don't think there was one thing to turn into self parody. I mean, you know, Caribou doesn't sound like Godspeed, doesn't sound like the Be Good Tanya's, doesn't sound like Hot Hot Heat, like doesn't sound like the Weaker Thans. You know, you it, maybe you could argue that the whole broken social scene, hidden cameras, thing of having so many people on stage which you know there are a lot of bands like that I, I make the point that even fucked up the biggest punk band of this time had six people in it which <laughs> for a punk band is ridiculous 
Yeah, just a shout out to the fuck bands. I, I love that phrase. I don't know if that's original with you, but uh, your reference to the fuck bands is. Well, we had holy fuck as well. They they came right. a bit after the period in this one. <laughs> uh, and uh, who else? Fuck the facts. Anyway, yeah, there are a few. But uh, yeah, that that could have that kind of big band thing could have been a parody, but it didn't really. It didn't really work out that way. And broken social scene continued to evolve and and develop. I'm gonna go see them tonight at Massey Hall. Who's gonna be there? I have no idea. <laughs> not my one friend who tested for covid uh, just before her first rehearsal with him um i, I it, and and people say well what happened after 2005 it's like it just continued it just yeah. continued and then you have something the success of drake and the weekend like they owe their career to the internet you know they owe their career to putting their music for free online and, and it distributing that way they didn't they didn't wait or want to be signed by anybody in canada that was not their point they took it to the world first and uh you know and again technological change someone like justin bieber like youtube star that's you know these days it's tiktok but but 15 years ago it was youtube um, and he was one of the first big youtube stars um now those are all very mainstream pop people i would say that uh the um yeah nothing slowed down everything continued to evolve but i would say that the, again this was a particular moment like if you look at um critics year-end lists like their favorite records of 2003, 2004, or whatever, there's usually at least two or three Canadian records on there. These days, that doesn't happen. You know, bands like The Weather Station and stuff like that do very well critically, but but not really kind of in the year-end lists or, or awards or stuff like that. So I feel like the spotlight has, has shifted away from Canada a bit, but the fact remains that because of the artists in this book, uh, newer generations are, are no longer stigmatized. They're no longer ghettoized. Uh, people are interested in something that comes out of Canada. I think before this period, people really weren't, you know, you, you just get these things like people didn't understand where Celine was from. They probably didn't even know where Quebec was. They knew she was an American. Maybe she was French. like people didn't even know or, or, or rush. It was like clear they're not American or British, but I don't know, maybe they're Australian. Like there just wasn't that perception. And and this and since the events in this book, there, there is a, a knowledge of Canadian music history, uh, of a diverse musical history, like not just Joni, Neil and Leonard not just, you know, Russian Triumph, not Celine, uh, Shania, Sarah McLaughlin, like really all, all different kinds of things and, and some gloriously weird things. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the, one of the real testaments to the, the impact of this story is, you know, you and I are sort of roughly the same age. I mean, it used to be very strange for a Canadian act to be successful. And it was, it was kind of remarkable, like it was remarked upon. Right. Whereas now, you know, I wonder, you know, the, some of the biggest acts in the world, like The Weeknd or Drake or Justin Bieber, like I wonder the extent to which somebody who's, you know, 13 now is like even sitting there thinking, oh, like they're Canadian. And that this seems to me, to, to your point in the book, like this seems to me the pivot point for that, right? Where the Canadian artist just suddenly becomes not only internationally successful but kind of unremarkably internationally successful like they they are no longer ghettoized to to use your term as as canadian like there's nothing sort of special about the fact that they came out of canada that, that they've sort of joined the the larger kind of community of, of successful successful acts which is is quite remarkable yeah, and during me. this time people would remark like holy cow what's going on in canada like it was yeah. very novel for the world to to suddenly turn their eyes here on mass yeah Absolutely. A few things I, I kind of, just as we sort of round the corner here, you dedicated the book 
to Gord Downey, and I, I just want to quote uh, the words that you used. Uh, so it's dedicated to the memory of Gord Downey, quote, without whose legacy this book would literally not have been possible, end quote. I was wondering if you could shed some light on, on that. Uh, well, he paid for it, frankly. Oh, there you go. Okay. Uh, not, not directly, because he wasn't involved in my tragical hit biography at all, uh, nor was the band, nor was anybody in the camp. But um, I wrote a biography of Downey and the Tragically Hip that was a national bestseller in Canada, exceeded all sales expectations, and I used all the money I made from that book to write this one. So in that sense, his legacy did pay for this book. Right. If, and if I can put in a plug for that book, that, that is a fantastic book. It, it's probably the, the best rock biography I've, I've ever oh. read. Um, I absolutely adore that book. And um, one, actually, if I could just pull on that thread for one second there, because one of the things which I found interesting about that book, to me, it seemed like there was an inflection point in the story that you told about the tragically hip. And it happened sort of, I think, roughly in the year 2000, where up to that point, it was the story of the tragically hip. And then after that, it sort of became much more about Gord Downey. And I sort of see, and I think you've, you've, you know, pointed to this in both that book and here, he played and his artistry and his approach to being a songwriter and to being a performer, I think played a, a critical role in, in some of the stories here because people looked to him as this, you know, authentic, expressive, emotional human being that achieves commercial success without really any sort of, you know, I hesitate to use the word compromise, but without compromising his, his vision for his art. Is, is he, is his legacy sort of present in these stories in that sense, and that people were picking up the baton sort of from where he had left it? Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't separate him from the band, uh, and neither would he. Um, I, I think they all <clears throat> acted the same way. Um, but I, I, if you want to talk about 2000, that is, is when he recorded his first solo record. So in that sense, that story does diverge a bit. And also 2000 was kind of like the end of their commercial apex, like, right. which is entirely natural. I, I don't think any band has more than 10 amazing years in them. And they might have an amazing career, but in terms of like the best years of their career are usually inside one decade, right? Any band in history. I mean, the Beatles didn't even last a decade. Um, so so there's that. So yeah, he is a, he is a, a thread through this. I mean, being his biographer, uh, clearly I'm, I'm sensitive to it and, and perhaps more aware of it than others. But And people would tell me stories about Gord that maybe they wouldn't tell other interviewers because it just wouldn't occur to them. But they're talking to the guy who wrote the hip book. So let me tell you about the time I met Gord. So, and a lot of people in this book might not even have liked his music, but if they ever met him, because he would be a fan of theirs, they knew him to be such an incredibly supportive, kind, thoughtful voice of wisdom who managed celebrity in a certain way, uh, like a very humble person in terms of celebrity. I mean, he clearly has an ego like any singer would, but in terms of his, his approach to celebrity, I think people found inspiring. His approach to his success, how that band invested in their career, ways in which they kept an arm's length away from much of the industry. They, they would all take tips from that. I mean, you know, uh, he was very supportive of, well, the whole band was very supportive of, of opening acts. I mean, they're known as being extremely benevolent to their opening acts. <clears throat> so some people like learned firsthand from the hip, people like Leslie Feist, when she played him by Divine Right, um, you know, 
Sarah Harmer knew that band since she was 16 and her older sisters were hanging out with them. So many in this people in this book opened for the hip and people you wouldn't expect to like people like the deers or stars, you know, musically uh, a bit of an odd buck 65, like uh, musically a bit of an odd fit. Uh, Sam Roberts, more of a, a, a good fit. Uh, Joel Plaskett, more of a good fit. And then there's all the aggressive acts like, like Alexis on fire, you know, uh, knew Gord quite well while like he and Dallas Green sang a, a hit single together. Um, uh, you know, and, and people like Billy Talent and, and even Fucked Up uh, worked with Gord, received wisdom from him. A band like the Sadies uh, made a record with him. Yeah, like uh, our members of Arcade Fire were talking about making a record with him right before he got sick. It's a total through line through the whole book. You know, and, and Blue Rodeo shows up in several stories too, and so does Sloan. But I, I do think uh, uh, Gord's presence is, is deeply felt. Yeah, amazing. And I, I, I'm, I feel very validated um, having read the book and, and having heard you just comment on that, that sort of 10-year theory, because I hold to that theory as well. Um, and also the other item that you mentioned in the book, which made me feel good, was a, a theory that like a, a musical generation is really sort of like your high school tenure. Right, like musical generation sort of last four or five years. Like it's like 13 to 18 and that's kind of it. The jacket copy on the book says that you're entering your jazz years. Yes. Um, so so uh, is, is there another book project in your future? And, and uh, what what might it cover? What era might it cover? I, I, I have no idea. Not, not immediately. Um, when I finished the hip book, I knew that I'd want, I had wanted to write this book for a while. So I can't say there's anything immediate. You know, I would, no, nothing, nothing I would comment on. I, I'm not even sure my ideas are, are that good. The Jazz Years comment is just about like, I'm, I rarely listen to rock and roll anymore. Like that's not, I, I'm not excited about any band with two guitars, bass, drums. You know, that's right. just not, I'm sure Pup are a great band. I just don't care. I just don't care anymore. Um, <laughs> and more power to them. Like they've, there's another band, like talk about like learning from the models of this book. Like they're doing extremely well and, and I have a lot of respect for them, but that's, just that kind of music is not something I'm interested in. So yeah, I'm just kind of recognizing my age and, and I don't think I will write about any new movement in music <laughs> anymore <laughs> in my life. Uh, that's, that's for someone else to do. And there's lots of great young writers who can and should do that. So I, I, I hope they do. I also hope that some young writers hate this book and think that they can do better because um, I would like them to. You know, I, I was inspired by mediocrity and uh, uh, thinking and knowing that I could do better than some people I was reading. So my hope is that uh, someone is so disgusted with me that they pick up a pen themselves and decide to do it better. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let's end on that note again. Uh, congratulations on the book. It's fantastic. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it. Thank you so much for taking the time today to have this conversation. This has been a real treat. Thank you so much for these very thoughtful questions. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com. One, one, zero. 